0: Hello and welcome to On Tap, a Theater and Performance Studies podcast I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. It's 2018. It's it's a new year, it's a new semester. Everything is very different from the last time we all recorded together, but we got the band back together. Uh, I am joined, uh, as always, by Sarah Bae-Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, it's it's nice to see you. I have to ask, based on your social media accounts, have you been visiting presidential libraries for some reason?
1: I have, as part of the digital historiography and performance book that I am continuing to work on Uh, I'm visiting uh, a number of museums some of which are presidential libraries uh, that have some kind of digital display digital history displays in them so my most recent trip uh, over the uh, winter break was to uh, Yorba Linda beautiful Yorba Linda California to visit the Richard M. Nixon uh, presidential library and museum which I highly highly recommend
0: that's, that's incredible I uh, love it I cannot it. wait to hear more uh, About this book um, I, I don't I, I can picture you In presidential libraries The Nixon library I don't know The Reagan library
1: Did you not see the picture Of me at the desk? <laughs> I like They were like It's one of the few Presidential libraries Where they like They let you sit at the desk I had a great time and Did
0: <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> do they give Did they awesome. give you The book of secrets?
1: no but if if you go during the holidays, they jack up the price they add an extra ten dollars to the mm. ticket uh, because of a a train display, but they give you your own um Nixon ornament so my Christmas tree is now <laughs> adorned with the the Richard Nixon official is ornament. it a picture of him
2: or a caricature or just his name
1: it is it is not none oh. of the above it is just his initials oh. <laughs> um uh uh on a on a red plastic car
0: <laughs> and, uh nothing says holiday season like the initials of uh Richard Nixon on your yule tied I, I
1: know. you know I have I, I at this point I've cleaned up most of my holiday decorations but that that ornament remains in a special place of prominence in my home
0: Excellent and we are joined uh once again and as usual by Harvey Young of wait for it Boston University. I'm back. Uh, you're back, um, Harvey. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the first one to call you Dean Young, but I, it just—I just wanted to try how uh, try that out. It sounds nice.
2: I guess so. Yeah, it works really well. People <laughs> have been very nice. I tell everyone to call me Harvey. You know, but you know, it's the, the hardest thing about being a dean is that people refer to you in a third person, like as like, oh, I don't know what the dean wants to do here, and you're just like, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm right next to you. Like, <laughs> like you know, it's it's so strange. <laughs> so,
0: like. That's, that's, that's excellent.
1: Dean Young is also kind of a young Dean, so there you <laughs> he go. Is.
0: Well done. Young Dean and Dean Young. Um, yeah, if, if listeners, if you can tell, if there's any sort of like intangible difference between episode 20 of On Tap and previous episodes, it might be that there's a new kind of New England slant to the podcast. We have representatives in Boston, Massachusetts, and in uh, Brunswick, Maine, is that right? Brunswick, Maine. So here I am out in St. Louis, um, repping the central time zone all by myself. Uh, Today on the podcast, we have three topics that we are excited to talk about. Um, We're going to talk about the patriarchy. Um, I promise that we will narrow this down, but um, the. The continuing uh, cultural moment around Me Too, um, around uh, claims of sexual misconduct in different fields um, has affected the world of theater, and we are going to talk about an essay published in HowlRound last month uh, by Holly Dare called Does Your Theater Department Have a Patriarchy Problem? We are going to talk about the Contemporary Performance Network. This is a website, social network, publishing entity based at uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, which shares an abundance of information about new trends in contemporary performance. And we read um, an article in Winter's TDR called Does the NEA Need Saving by Sarah Wilbur, which gives us a chance to catch ourselves and our listeners up on the uh, continuing precarious situation that the NEA um, is in. And Sarah Wilbur has an interesting take on that situation. Before we get to those topics, just a a couple of items to round up. Harvard's all-male student theater group, Hasty Pudding, announced that they will open auditions to all genders for the first time in their 174-year history. Atha announced that for the first time, conference registration fees are going to be lowered for the 2018 conference, and there will also be free regional, regional workshops and symposia organized. Um, I'd like to get uh, the president of Atha on the phone to see if we can get some additional information <laughs> about this. Oh, wait, the president of Atha is on the podcast. Harvey, uh, is there anything you can tell us about the, um, the, the, these new policies or the impulse behind them at Atha?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a couple of things. One, uh, we've realized that the registration fees for conferences are just increasing year over year, uh, while uh, the budgets uh, for d- departments uh, and in one's own personal pocketbook, your income is not necessarily increasing. Uh, so what we did is we took a hard look and we decided that... Um, you know, we made some very effective and sort of cost-saving measures in terms of looking where we're going in the future for conferences. We negotiated better food and beverage packages, uh, lower room rates, uh, and by lowering our commitments to those hotels, we were able to pass along those savings uh, for multiple years into the future uh, to our members, right? So we're going across the board at all levels, a $15 cut in registration rates. Uh, And in addition, we realized that, you know, any association worth its, you know, name or, you know, deserving of membership should be more than once a once-a-year conference. Uh, so we're having multiple uh, regional gatherings where we'll talk about professional development, we'll talk about the state of of community colleges, and, um, um, and then also we're going to talk about uh, safe spaces, how to build and cultivate those. And a fourth thing that we're going to do is we're going to have a gathering with sort of mid-career associate professors in terms of how to advance the next level. So those are four things that we're going to do, all for free, uh, all for people who are members of the organization. That's
0: excellent. Well, sign me up for the associate professor events. And um, that's really great. I I commend, Atha, I commend you for, and and everyone working to make that happen. I think it's a really positive thing. Um, It reminds me of an initiative that uh, Tracy Davis and Heather Nathans are working on to basically create a network to launch regional um, mini-conferences and mentoring um, events for contingent faculty. Um, I don't know that it's um, far enough along in development that I should share any details about that, but it also seems like a great way that um, people are reaching out to um, people in the profession who might want to drive to an event rather than fly and, and stay in a hotel. So it sounds great. I don't know. Other news events, there's not a lot that I have been tracking. Of course, it's the time when graduate uh, application um, decisions are made, when job searches and interviews are being carried on. Of course, we don't cover those things in depth. Um, The Aster deadline for uh, plenary and and working session uh, uh, applications came and went on February 1st. So, you know, if you're learning about that from this podcast, then it's too late. Um, But (laughs) sometimes those those deadlines get extended. Who knows? (laughs)
1: Uh, but not too late to um, apply or nominate for the uh, any one of the numerous AFA uh, awards. That nomination deadline um, is coming up quickly. It's February 15th. Um, but I know uh, I'm the chair of one of the subcommittees uh, for the awards for the Excellence in uh, Digital Scholarship. And I know that many of the categories are still looking for additional submissions. And so I would encourage uh, you know, our listeners at, at, at really every level. So if you are a senior person, it's, it's a great way to recognize and nominate your junior colleagues um, and recognize great work. If you're a junior person, it's an excellent way to uh, pay back excellence in mentorship and things that people have done for you in the past. So um, as a way of just acknowledging, like, all the great work that's happening in our field, uh, do think about uh, nom- putting in those nominations by February 15th on the website.
0: Thank you very much, Sarah. So we wanted to dedicate um, some time to talk about uh, patriarchy. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, the 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 hashtag Me to moment, for lack of a better word, has been continuing, and um, uh, a a series of um, incidents of claims of sexual misconduct uh, have have continued to be revealed. Um, From my vantage point, this seems to be playing out mostly in the worlds of politics, entertainment, entertainment, media, and arts. Um, But there is also a list of people in theater, actually, um, who have faced accusations of this type. And I'm thinking of theater directors and directors of arts organizations and theaters, um, uh, theater organizations. Um, I am not going to make a list of names, but I will just say that uh, leadership positions at the Met Opera, at Long Wharf Theater, um, at the Alley Theater in Houston um, uh, have been affected by these types of claims, and there's been a lot of reporting on those stories. You can you can look them up. Um, I'll mention as an aside that um, the, there's a podcast called Three on the Aisle, Um which is produced by TCG and in their most recent episode they talked about some of these allegations and the effects that they're having on artists. There have been a few high-profile figures in academia who have been accused of this type of behavior, none in our field, to my knowledge. But I do think that this is an issue that we should talk about because, for one, the stories that are in the theater world and the professional theater world show that in theater, as in media and entertainment, there are conditions that have allowed sexual harassment of that kind um, and that kind of misconduct to happen and as people who work in academic theater, I think we'd be naive to imagine that those conditions don't also potentially exist in educational institutions, in theater departments. Um, And beyond just the, you know, the specific phenomena of um, sexual harassment or sexual assault, there's a a broader set of concerns related to sexism and patriarchy that were uh, pointed to in in an essay by Holly Dare that was uh, published in HowlRound last month. The essay is called does your theater department have a patriarchy problem? Um, and it th- I think it really aptly addresses this concern. Um, Dare calls for the examination of misogynist practices and theater programs, and she gives a list of red flags that suggest there might be a sort of problem in the, the culture of a department. There are 11 of these. Um, some of these uh, red flags, as she calls them, I would say are indicative of a more generally toxic environment, not necessarily... Um, patriarchy. For example, you know, students see each other as competition or students feel like they have to choose sides. Um, but for the most part, these are indications that there's something out of whack with the program culture and it has to do with the sexual dimensions of power. So excessive violence towards women represented on stage, or lots of nudity on stage, or very few roles for women. Um, So I think the essay's really interesting, really helpful. She points to some good resources that could help um, people decide on best practices. Um but uh I guess I'll I'll open this question up to you Sarah. Um having read that essay having thought about this what are the things that faculty can do um that administrators can do to prevent abusive situations or sexist environments from uh flourishing and affecting students.
1: Well I think you know one of the primary things that I think is getting quite a bit of discussion happily so is that looking around at all the different environments uh in which allegations of of harassment and exclusion and and sexism and and worse are occurring it it's almost always in in situations in which there is a power imbalance um, and particularly a power imbalance between you know m- usually men at the top who are relatively protected and insulated from any kind of either peer or superior scrutiny and so have a great deal of autonomy in in setting policy making hiring. Uh, and firing decisions, uh, etc, so I know that you know, in response, for example, to uh, New York City ballet, uh, one of the you know the uh, there's a piece in The Times talking a lot about the role of the board and the role of board oversight, and is you know are artistic boards doing their due diligence with regard there. I would also say that one thing I have not heard as much about, although i what I have observed is that you know what academia and uh, and performance entertainment broadly construed have in common is also a surplus of labor. so you 've got a lot of people who are training and and trained and wanting to go into the field relative to how many positions there are to accommodate accommodate those people and so that that numeric imbalance, I think also invites a situation in which the, there is a constant drive to do more, to agree to more, because you are in a competitive, uh, competitive environment. It's an incredibly competitive, you know, whether you're going on auditions or you're going on job interviews, it's an incredibly competitive uh, labor market. And so that situation also invites a lot of uh, these kind of power imbalances that I think contribute to to what we're seeing in, in and the ways in which those disproportionately fall upon women and and especially young women but not exclusively i think it falls upon any vulnerable uh, population who doesn't feel like they have the authority or the power or the the privilege of being able to say no to requests because then you think you're going to get passed over for the next person in line
0: yeah i think that's a really good point um there's a certain amount of control that um educators have over the classroom over the rehearsal space um But I think you make a good point, which is that if the conditions exist broadly for economic exploitation, that sexual exploitation uh, becomes a more uh, common thing and a a harder thing to safeguard against.
1: I mean, in, in a very immediate way, we can all look at the gender balance in our departments, both in our faculty and in our student bodies. And um, certainly in a, in a lot of places, there is a lot of attention to that. Um, there's also, as it should be, a lot of attention to uh, racial and ethnic and other kinds of representational uh, presence in among the faculty, mm-hmm. right? So, and relative to students, um, you know, some institutions are doing a better job at this than others. Um, but I think the larger, I mean, where the economic part comes in is it may be, and this has come up in a number of different contexts, but I think this is a, a a related symptom of of something we've talked about elsewhere, which is that you know maybe we need to have fewer graduate students in the field.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't. I think that's its own issue, and I think there are there's a I, to my mind they're... You don't think they're connected? I, I think, they're abso- think they're, they're no, absolutely. I think they're absolutely connected, but I do think the there's a structural relationship between what the condition of actors is in the entertainment and arts industry and what's going on in the educational situation. I would totally agree that if actors are more desperate for work, then they're going to be in more compromised situations. But I also think that there's another side to that, which is that um, and I want to be careful because I've, I'm just talking about like anecdotal incidents that I've heard about over the years and not necessarily anywhere where I have worked or studied. But I have heard stories about um, faculty at conservatory programs telling students they ought to lose weight, telling them that they ought to manage their appearance in certain ways, basically preparing them for a marketplace in which their appearance and their sex appeal is going to be important. And to my mind, that's another structural relationship. There are jobs in entertainment and in theater where you're expected to conform to a certain body type or look a certain way. And that structural relationship I don't think is necessarily dependent on the labor pool. Um, but I don't think you're wrong, Sarah, about that about that observation. Um, Harvey, I, I thought I'd uh, turn another question to you. Um, uh, Dare in this article brings up different – Policies or different aspects of, of theater education, um, the amount of the number of roles for female performers relative to the number in the casting pool, um, the presence of nudity or the you know staging choice to have students in relative states of undress. I think sometimes this issue operates on the level of costume design, um, and she also mentions the you know the way that representations of physical intimacy, kissing or sex or anything like that needs to be handled in a way where um, consent is very explicit. What's your sense, having been a department chair um, of best practices or common sort of cultural norms for the ways students need to be treated around these sensitive issues? Do you sense that there's consensus? Are there good documents? Do you feel like there are certain practices that everyone should keep in mind?
2: That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that there are a few useful things that emerge from the article. One being we need to acknowledge the fact that the majority of students and audiences are women within theater. And it's imperative for us to serve that audience uh, by having a, uh, a proportionate uh, representation of roles um, and opportunities both on stage and off stage uh, for women within theater, uh, which de- which has not happened. Uh, so that's really important. Uh, secondly, it's worthwhile to have workshops on consent and intimacy and the staging of, of charged physical encounters. Uh, and sometimes what happens is we have stage combat workshops, but we don't do the same thing around uh, the staging of bedroom scenes uh, in which people can be uh, in which vulnerabilities can be exploited. Uh, so, so those are two really powerful, impactful things that need to happen. Uh, and to go back to Sarah's point, I think that one thing that every department and university needs to do is to create a culture where uh, people are explicit about not tolerating uh, any environment that allows harassment or misconduct to occur. And too often we're in settings where someone says oh this hasn't applied to me this isn't my experience but it happens to the person next to them Uh, and we need to be aware of our responsibilities to be an ally and an advocate for others uh, and then to report up to others uh, when we hear about those incidents of misconduct so that uh, the person who might have experienced it to, to our side you know is the last person to ever have that experience rather than just one of many.
1: And I, I think to that end, you know, a lot of the choices that we make, again, at the structural institutional level in our departments, what, what plays we produce, how many roles there are, uh, looking for texts that are more open. So uh, this semester I'm directing Love and Information uh, by Carol Churchill. And one of the wonderful things about this play, other than it being just a, a kind of interesting, timely play, is that there are no character designations so you can cast as many people as you want. They can be whatever genders they are. They can have whatever physical attributes they have. And, um, and what I found is that this, is, this has resulted in a very large, very diverse cast in which I don't have to tell someone the, how they need to change in order to be more like uh, a fictional person. Uh, and I don't have to worry about people feeling like they don't fit with some kind of ideal. Um, because I think what you mentioned, panel, in terms of students being told uh, i mean uh, you know uh, I stopped acting because I was not feminine enough and and there weren't there weren't roles where I could do that, and I see a lot of my students struggling, um, particularly if they're non binary with how to place themselves uh, in the world and so i think a lot we can be more creative and more expansive in, in the kinds of material that we look at we can also look for opportunities to play across all kinds of definitions uh and and get away from i mean i think you know this goes back to a point jill dolan made decades ago right which is that you know realism uh doesn't always need to be limiting, but it certainly can be restrictive in certain ways. And so, you know, putting as many different kinds of opportunities on the table for everybody, I think, is and being very explicit about one's intention to do so.
0: She, um, Holly Dare in the article suggests flipping the genders of roles uh, for plays in the public dom- domain and getting permission from playwrights to flip gender roles. She seems to be very much on the side of, um, you know, Openness to uh, uh, changing the the sex, race, gender, etc. of characters, which I personally I think it's a good thing, especially in academic theater. Um, I mean, of
2: course, I I, I, go. I I agree, uh, but to go back to what Sarah was saying, I think that. A large part of this is the power dynamic and power differential that exists uh, within the theater, uh, and we know when we listen in and we listen closely to uh, the Me Too stories, um, you know, they run along, they run along all lines of desire. Uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, we don't want to be too narrow in our definition in terms of like, of um, you know, who are the people who are being um, the targets of, of this unfortunate attention.
0: I think it's a good point. Let me ask one more question related to this, though maybe it's too big for the the minutes that we have left on it. Um, one thing that Holly Dare doesn't talk about is the gender ratios among faculty. Um, and this is actually something I think is a really interesting topic in our field, though I don't know that there's been any study of it or um, any reliable information. I've just had conversations over the years with people who, for example, you know, have said you know, we're doing a search for a new acting teacher and we noticed that, you know, we have nine out of 10 faculty members are men. <laughs> you know, that type of a situation would seem to be uh, a problem. Um, uh, I've also heard more more recently people talking about how there seem to be more applications in graduate education like for PhD programs that are women. Um, it's very hard for me to get a global sense of the gender representation among faculty globally. I think of our field as being one where many of the most prominent and respected and successful scholars are women. Um, But I'm not sure, you know, if you think about academic theater and performance studies, does it have a patriarchy problem? If you imagine the sort of rank and file of professors in departments across the country, I imagine it would still appear as a pretty male field. Um, I guess the question that maybe
1: well can I can I answer what yeah, you just please said do, though yeah so i've have, i've have two thoughts on that one is is to raise the issue of i think when we start talking about gender breakdowns we need to now not just be limiting ourselves to thinking about men and women um that there's a a much broader spectrum there that we ought to acknowledge and the other is uh i i don't know what the what the numbers are either but i think it's important to recognize I mean, I don't think you can talk about rank and file and patriarchy, right? When, when we start talking about power, right? Of which patriarchy, we're talking about like, okay, so where are the best positions? Like, wh- who has the most freedom, the most autonomy, uh, the, the 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 least obligations on their time? Who who is able to to set agenda within departments and. Uh, not just the agendas within departments, but also within colleges, within uh, within the within universities, and and certainly I think every field, but but it, but also theater and performance, you know, also has a pipeline problem, right? Which is like how many, you know, how many people are getting promoted, how many people are going beyond associate, and then who's in uh, major, uh, you know, positions of power uh, and 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 authority and you know i mean we can point to like really prominent examples of people who who have have done this but i think it's it's also just we need to be attentive not just to how many but to the quality of those individual positions yeah, as well
0: yeah i would absolutely agree and i totally take your um your your point about the non binary nature of gender i guess the point that i was trying to make is even though i think a lot of the best most powerful positions are occupied by non cisgendered men. That my guess, my hunch is that if you look at department rosters in smaller institutions, if you were to look globally in the United States, you'd actually find significant overrepresentation by cisgendered men, and that that would be hmm. the, a type of st- uh, condition that I would expect would lend itself to patriarchal abuses of the type that Dare is mentioning. So I think you're absolutely right. I still think that if you look very carefully uh, at the grain of the of the of the profession, that it's male dominated and, and cis male dominated. But this is a completely unresearched. <laughs> assertion.
1: Um, I, not unresearched. Uh, not, yet yes, not yet researched. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll put it, this on our right. own agenda for the so future.
0: We should move on to our second topic, um, the Contemporary Performance Network. This is a fantastic um, resource that I, in my uh, naivete and ignorance didn't know about until just a couple of months ago. Um, it came to my...
1: It's taken you a while to get out of the 18th century well, panel. It's it, okay. There's so much
0: to do there. Um,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, I, this came across by a, a, a Facebook feed. Um, Caden Manson, who is the um, editor in chief of contemporaryperformance.com, posted a, a, a paper on contemporary trends in performance that included a section on mixed reality performance and so I thought that was really impressive and I started clicking around and lo and behold there's this amazing um, website it builds itself as a social network and community organizing platform but it is really a kind of excellent node for information about what is going on in theater and performance uh, now and what the new trends are Um, So I guess I just wanted to talk about it and see what your reactions to it are. Um, I I specifically think that the area of mixed reality is a really interesting one, and maybe we could spend some time talking about that. Um, uh, I think that that is a, as much as I'm a kind of grumpy conservative about what I think performance is and the sort of field specificity of live experience, it may be, and actually, maybe because of that reason, I think mixed, perform, mixed reality performance is really interesting because you seem to have, on the one hand, artists who are picking up new digital tools and portable devices and creating these exciting, contrived experiences. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of energy and resources being expended in the sort of software and gaming industry, creating things that are very similar. Um, so I think it's a sort of exciting new area for um, performance studies. Um, but Sarah, this must be all old news to you. And um, Harvey, I'm sure you knew about this website before I did. But no, um, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, do you have previous experience with contemporary performance? I,
1: I do. I've been a member of the uh, of the uh, site since it started on Ning about um, I don't know eight years oh, ago, ten geez. years ago, something <laughs> like that. It's been around for Wait, a while. It started on what um, on Ming. Uh, Ning. So originally there was like a there was a site called Ning, and it was essentially a build-your-own social media yeah. network. Um, and so Caden Manson and uh, and Gemma Nelson of Big Art Group mm-hmm. uh, essentially started this as a resource to connect contemporary artists of all stripes, uh, dance. Theater, solo, media, non-media, um, to each other, and there are uh, there were a series of of features. So there was a, a book group, right, where people on the on the on the network would all read a book and comment on it together. Caden is is kind of a, a social media mm-hmm. wizard. So if you follow him or the CMU John Wells directing program, which he runs. Um, or the Contemporary um, Performance Network, um, which which he runs, you know, you'll just see a wealth of of information coming through. So uh, workshops, uh, so it, it gave it gave artists the opportunity to promote themselves, to share what they were doing, to ask questions, to connect with other artists, and there are a fair number of scholars on there as well. Um, it's a great resource if you're going to be traveling to a particular place and you're curious about sort of what's off the beaten path or what's not showing up in. You know the timeout uh, publication or dominant newspaper publications to find out what's there, but it has yielded a number of other products as well. So he now publishes um, an index every is year. Is that the almanac? The uh, almanac is that what? The yeah, almanac. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I'm sorry. The com- I'm thinking of the emergency index uh, for new work, but no, the, the per- contemporary performance almanac, which it gives each each person on the on the on the site the opportunity to write like basically a one page overview, and those are great. For the past few years, he's also, um, he and Gemma both have done uh, programming for the network uh, on a festival at the Wild Project on the, on, in the East Village in New York time to overlap the APAP festival. Um, so it's just a great, uh, it's just a great resource. Um, Good and, afternoon. This uh, is a routine, semi-annual. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, I have my phone turned off, but that well, actually. If, that was, if uh, it's routine
0: and semi-annual, I don't think you need to worry about it.
1: It's it's the it's the emergency broadcast or the <laughs> emergency works. testing yeah, of this works. campus. Yeah. Anyway, so he and so they've actually they've programmed a, a festival of work, and so it's it's really great. And the 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 paper that you're referring to panel is actually a series of essays, I believe, written by the directing students in the CMU John Wells program, and there are both articles and sort of. Lovely little lit reviews, and also interviews with visiting artists. So it's just—I mean, it's just an amazing project, and all done uh, as in the spirit of generosity to the field. It's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's great to be able to, to to sing its praises here. It's yeah, it's
0: it's really great. Um, I was I was looking through the—I want to call it a white paper. I think um, listeners, you can get this if you go to contemporaryperformance.com look under news, and then there's a form where you can enter your contact information and get a PDF of this. But it's it's got an abundance of information in it. Under each of the five segments, um, which are on different topics like mixed reality performance, cabaret performance, immersive performance, At the there's a good write-up of, of sort of major um, participants in those new genres, and then a list of like 15 or 20 artists and institutions working in it with contact information at the end of it. So you can get in touch quickly. Um, I was delighted to be reminded, um, in the section on performance cabaret, there's an entry, uh, for Taylor Mac uh, and, and, you know, the artists have their pronouns listed and I was delighted to see that, uh, Taylor Mac's pronoun is listed as Judy,
1: <laughs> which I think
0: <laughs> I, I think I knew that before. Yes. I've, um, I've forgotten that too. <laughs> it rules.
1: Lowercase in case you're using Judy pronouns.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, well, I don't know. Do you guys have takes on the mixed reality or augmented reality performance um, on the on the sort of software side? This is like, I guess it's like Pokemon Go would be the example, right? You look at your phone screen and there's a thing in there. The New York Times has just rolled out their their own new augmented reality app, and then on the performance side, um, there are games or experiences like the one called bad news that I blurbed um, in the, our draft section a couple of months ago. Um, people are using devices in sort of scenographic environments or, or creating experiences where you interact through your phone with an actor or a, you know, a, a piece of software that communicates with you. Um, what do you guys think about these new experiments in, in performance?
2: I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. Um, you know, simply the idea that um, you as an individual can make a performance happen and interact and be immersed within one, no matter where you are, and especially the performances that are crafted around your your profile, right? And, and essentially the. Uh, I, I keep thinking of like the, the old movie, The Game, with Michael Douglas, which I, I loved for a while. I used to watch over and over again. You know yeah. the sense of crafting a game and crafting an immersive environment around uh, uh, your your personality and being so predictive that it. Uh, goes from level to level, um, but it, it's not there yet. But I love the sense that uh, hopefully it theater doesn't can be get everywhere. that far.
0: <laughs> hopefully it doesn't become the game. Yes, that's yeah, that's like yeah. The, the jumping worst out of a
2: window. There's <laughs> <Right. laughs> something like that. Right. But uh, I thought it was fantastic. But you know, knowing that th- these resources uh, uh, has ex- have existed for a while made me realize I'm a little out of date of some things. It's like, kind of like saying there's this new thing that doesn't require you to use a phone booth anymore you know it's like you're like whoa how how can that be so i'm just happy to be uh in the 21st century again (laughs) yeah me
0: too who needs the 18th century or the the, the 20th century right well why don't we leave that there and move on to our third topic so in the winter edition of tdr there is an essay called does the nea need saving by sarah Wilbur. it's an excellent Explanation of the current state of affairs. Although I will say it was written six months ago, um, but the situation hasn't really changed. Um, of the NEA, now we talked about this last year on the podcast, um, and you know just to update. The Sarah Wilbur story, my understanding of what's going on with the budget is that it's basically we're basically where we were last summer, which is that the federal government is operating under the latest of a series of continuing resolutions. These just keep the government open. they are not a budget that does anything to set near term priorities, and that the impasse in Washington about the budget has to do with on the one hand um, Republican uh, advocates for massively increased defense spending versus Republicans who are deficit hawks and don't want to blow up the deficit, versus Democrats who don't want to sign a budget deal without ensuring passage of the the DREAM Act or DACA. Um, And that because we seem to be unable to move past those um, differences, uh, there is no federal budget and there may not be one for months. And in the meantime, the NEA, the NEH, continue to be funded. But there's very little information that I've been able to tell about to what extent it's a priority for Republicans to defund the NEA, as um, the Trump budget last year suggested that they wanted to. So I highly recommend this article. I will say that um, Bill Wilbur, who is a postdoctoral fellow in dance at, at Brown currently, writes beautifully about fiscal issues. Um, this is a, a sort of unusual talent in our field, I think. But she makes the federal budget an exciting thing that you want to learn about. And, <laughs> and she makes the NEA and its sort of um, uh, bureaucratic steerage and um, administration an interesting topic as well. You know, she raises a provocative point, and maybe, Harvey, you can respond to this. So the, 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 the title of the essay is Does the NEA Need Saving? And there's a double meaning to that, right? Um, should we be worried that it's going to be defunded and essentially put out of existence on the one hand? And on the other hand, um, how bad is that if it happens? She, if I read her correctly, argues that the current state of the NEA – after the 90s culture war is that it is very much directed towards rural areas, low-income areas, that it sort of advocates for its own activities by saying, we are providing arts education in places where there is none, um, and we are, you know, creating sort of art therapy for war veterans. And her interpretation of this uh, includes a kind of, you know, cynical observation, which is that it's a sad state of affairs when the NEA is basically trying to remediate the damage from the defunding of social welfare programs, the defunding of education, and the war in Iraq. And that you could even argue that there's a way that the NEA sort of covers for those um, policy failures by saying, look, we're doing good work with veterans. Look, we're doing good work with um, kids who don't have access to arts education. So I thought it was an interesting take on the conversation we've been having about the NEA. Um, Harvey, do you have any responses to that or thoughts yeah, about
2: that? I, yeah, I mean that, I mean, that seems to be definitely the case uh, that you, you have a piece here that, I mean, if, if you if you... If you remind yourself of the debates that were occurring several months ago, you know, then you can imagine this piece as being even more vivid and, and, and alive, right? Sort of being in the midst of, of this conversation, you know, but, you know, asking us to pause and think about not only why are we actively advocating for the continued existence of the NEA, but also to look at what the NEA does and to be justifiably critical of its processes, right? Uh, That, you know, in its own Struggle, you know, to justify its existence. You know, it's made some safe bets. It's moved away from direct investment in the arts. Uh, that that effort to spread money widely and I guess thinly, <laughs> you know, right? it limits its uh, its reach. Uh, and and she also critiques its organizational structure, right? You know, asking for and demanding certain levels of co investment, so it falls short of realizing its potential. And I think that, of course, in the end, she argues. Yes, the NEA needs to be saved, but it needs to be rethought as well, you know, as it is also being saved.
1: When I was reading this, it, it really reminded me... Uh, so there are a couple points that really align with, with arguments you had been making, Harvey, about the geographic distribution, but it also... Some of her more direct and, for me, compelling questions about the role of the institution in, in American culture, and she quotes from Richard Schechner's piece in 1966 when the NEA was coming into existence and about the, the role that the theater people would play in particular and that really reminded me and took me back to Lisa Freeman's book uh, and, and I think there is a, a, an even broader, deeper question which is, is the United States as a diverse large and uh, in some ways essentially conservative small c uh, Republican culture. What is the role of a national arts organization in in such a place um, and with such a history? And and I think that that whole question of how our, our the very founding of the country aligns with the the what many of us in the arts would see as the goal of a kind of you know socialized art support. Uh, whether or not that's that's has ever been achievable,
0: I think it's a it it refracts um, well with I think some other arguments in left politics, which is that you know and again the NEA in the in the grand scheme of things with um, the tremendous um, decisions about I mean the decisions about gigantic expenditures of resources and. Um, you know the how big the military is and things like this. It's likely to just be. I, I worry that it's likely to just be ignored, and that they will pass total defunding of it with no one debating it or no one mentioning it because there's so many so many other things going on that people are paying attention to. Um, it does remind me of a kind of left criticism of the Democratic Party and sort of mainstream liberal politics, which is that when you compromise, when you sort of say, okay, okay, we're gonna You know, we're going to distribute this money through arts institutions. We're going to partner with, you know, private and philanthropic organizations. We're going to make sure that no one thinks we're funding, you know, artists who do transgressive or politically charged work. Um, That you end up with a situation where you've kind of sold out the important thing about um, what publicly financed art can do or that you you know you don't necessarily get anywhere by compromising with a conservative social agenda i i wondered if it's it's not it would not be more advantageous to sort of argue for big arts funding you know the NEA should have hundreds of millions of dollars a year and it should fund national theater organizations in every state that you might get a more um, you might actually get even more political traction by um, articulating a big and transformative vision that people can imagine having a direct impact in in their lives um, rather than, you know, essentially trying to meet arch-conservative arguments halfway.
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about sort of the role of neoliberalism and the whole neoliberal concept before, and I think you know, one of the things that comes out very clear in Wilbur's analysis is the the whole public-private partnership and the foundation of, of arts funding. Uh, and again, what I would say is coming out of a very particular historical tradition of being seen as expendable, luxurious, uh, associated with marginalized and often um, dismissed and disenfranchised communities. Um you know, so the, the, the hanging on to and the maximizing of, of corporation and corporate support, that all seems to, to me to be perfectly in line with trends and, and certainly with, with what you're saying, panel. Uh, you know, to, to, to talk more cynically and play devil's advocate, you know, I think um, I think uh, to, to make the case for a bigger arts deal, uh, you know, or a new arts deal, Would first have to require that that people did see art in their community as being necessary and meaningful, and I'm not sure that, given the economic realities for most Americans in most communities, that that is true anymore. But, But isn't that? But wasn't
0: Harvey arguing last year that actually, in small town America, in places off the coasts? That actually people do appreciate art that people actually love their local theaters and want to see them supported
1: they might on an individual level and sorry, I think you have more information on this Harvey but the, the point I'm making is on a on an is a is a simple numbers right Museum attendance is down um, over the past three decades um, theater attendance is down over the past three decades libraries are less often used and have uh, decreased uh, programming. And I, again, I'm talking in very broad, um, in broad but, terms. But aren't so, they still uh, cherished?
0: But, I mean, isn't there still a sort of red state culture that values the arts, even if it's not statistically yeah. as big no, as it
1: used to be? I mean, there
2: is. I mean, part, part of the challenge with federal dollars is that a, a large percentage of it is distributed through state arts agencies, right? So in Arizona, for example, half of Arizona's arts funding comes from uh, NEA appropriations. And so sometimes it can be difficult to connect the the dot from, you know, the federal funding to your local arts organization. But the level of elected representatives and senators, congress uh, folk, uh, they understand that if you slash the NEA uh, budget, it's going to negatively negatively impact, you know, arts within their local communities. And if you acknowledge the fact that the NEA, as Wilbur notes, has done a very good job at, Spreading the money across the country, you know, it's places like Alaska that will be hit the hardest per capita uh, in terms of cuts and loss of arts funding uh, than places like New York, New York State. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it'll be interesting to see if this makes a blip in any eventual budget deal. If there is, you know, uh, grassroots or community or, or you know, state governors saying hold on and just let us have our NEA grants. Like we, there's nothing wrong with this stuff.
2: I mean, it's, it's such a small percentage of the overall federal budget that it, yeah. it can be politicized or it can also just fly under the radar. And when it flies under the radar, it tends to continue on and also get increased, which is why I previously wrote how under Republican administrations where it's both a Republican-controlled Congress as well as a Republican president of the White House, mm-hmm. arts funding always goes up.
0: Yeah, well, that's actually a more optimistic take than I had, which was just that no one would actually notice that they, that they would just that they would just carry across a couple of paragraphs in the omnibus budget deal, and no one would actually debate or notice, and they'd be like, "Oh, I guess there's no more NEH now. I guess there's no more NEA. I hope you're right, Harvey. I think remember, there was
2: an, remember the budget increased uh, this year over last year. Yeah, by two. E- even years. with the threat of zeroing out the NEA and NEH budgets.
0: Yeah. Um, so. I think we ought to wrap this up. It'll be a little bit of a short episode, but um, uh, some of us have to have to take off. Um, let's do our drafts, shall we? Um, old listeners to on tap will know what drafts are. They are things on our minds, things we're thinking about, um, related to the profession, related to research. Um, uh, Dean Young, would you like to start us off with a, a, a Deanly draft?
2: Sadly, I don't really have much of a Deanly draft. Uh, my, my draft is paused, uh-huh. uh, perhaps frozen, uh, because all my b- books are still in boxes. Because uh, no. my office does not have a bookshelf. And I'm waiting a few weeks for my bookshelves to arrive. And then I will put my books on my bookshelves, which then means I can open books and continue thinking about the things I was thinking about in terms of writing projects. So I'm just. Yeah that's looking great. at the sky and watching the sun rise and set and that's about it these days that's <laughs> Although you're, find, you're finding
0: it. time to write for u.s news and world report and, and critique the state of the union performances
2: so oh i was just commenting you know the whole yeah. writing thing is that's another that's level
0: <laughs> oh okay i got it um uh, sarah do you have a, a draft you'd like to share with us
1: sure i'm uh so i'm I, I I tend to do like a you know sort of feast or famine uh, with with doing talks. I do a lot of them, and then I think, oh, I'm doing too many of them, so I'm not going to do anymore. And then I say no to everything, and and then I'm like, you know, I'm now I'm bored <laughs> and I have plenty of time, and then so then I say yes to everything. So now I'm in a I went from a, a semester where I gave no talks to a semester where I'm doing several this this term. Um, and and in doing, and I'm also in, in the context of that. I, one of my students is is organizing the the TEDx Bowdoin and has asked me to do a TED a TED talk, which I've never done cool. before. And so I'm thinking about the the ways in which TED TED talks and and uh, and oral performances and media are in some ways reanimating performance scholarship. And 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 I don't mean scholarship about performance. I mean scholarship as performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a kind of rhetorical uh, tradition of oratory. And, and for those of us who have ever taught large lecture courses, right, we know such things have never really gone away. But I'm curious about how the circulation through media and certainly online changes our, our sense of this. And so I'm, I'm the, giving talks is by far and away my favorite form of scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I have a large stack of talks that I promise I will turn into written publications at some point, but, but they were so much more fun to do for the talk <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and actually sitting down and doing all the, all the work that re- you know requires them to be readable uh, sometimes seems a lot less yeah. fun than just performing them and throwing them away and, and going moving on my way. Um, but I'm I'm just but I'm curious about that kind of uh, tradition and, and a lot of people to be fair have 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 written and, and, and written very well about about TED and the rhetorical you know tradition and oratories and and performance studies but so I'm I'm so I guess I'm sort of interested in doing that as my own little yeah. research as performance as research uh, as performance you, as research you put me
0: you yeah. remind me of one of my favorite spoofs of a TED talk which is on um, the. The late season of Mr. Show that they did. I think they did four additional episodes of Mr. Show that they released to Netflix a couple of years ago, and there's one where David Cross does, uh, like, a you know. Spoof TED Talk that's pretty hilarious. I'll, I'll recommend that to you. Although maybe after you do your TED Talk, you don't want to get in your head about it.
1: <laughs> oh no! I mean, there are a number of, of very good, very good spoof TED Talks that TED actually highlights. Um, and and one very famous from Sarah Silverman that they that they specifically do yeah. not uh, promote as their as their sort of spoof <laughs> talks. Yeah. And, I, and I'll recommend all okay, of those. Okay, I will look that up. They're great.
0: Um, my draft uh, is, a, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this performance theory seminar. It's one of our required seminars in our master's program and just loving it. Um, I've sort of designed it to be about sort of foundational works and trying to reconstruct the um, uh, the development of the idea that there is such a thing as performance theory by reading, you know, t- basically just 20th century texts and a lot of Richard Checkner But we start with Irving Goffman, um, because he's one of those names that always comes up at the beginning of accounts of the field, including when Schechner talks about his own performance theory. So we're reading the presentation of self in everyday life. Um, But there's an earlier article that Goffman published called On Facework. Um, And you can find this online if you look for it. And it's interesting in terms of our field, because one of the things that makes Goffman important to performance theorists is that he constructs this very um, systematic analogy between um, theatrical performance and face-to-face social interactions, and he very much denies that it's anything but a metaphor for him, um, but I still think we have this idea in our heads of the, you know, theatrical presentation of self. Um, in this earlier essay, though, on face work, it's, it's basically the same ideas as in the presentation of self in everyday life, but there's no theater language in it. It's the language of, of, of the face um, and avoidance and ways that you manage your face in, in social life. So I recommend that. Guys, it's great to see you again. Uh, thanks, guys, for doing the podcast. And, and thanks, listeners. And we'll, um, we'll be back at you very soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.